Hey everyone, welcome back to the Little Criminology Corner. My name is Quest, I am your host today, and let's get started on a new topic this week. We are actually talking about crime and the media. So, how might the media relate to and or impact our understanding of crime? Well, the main thing we can think about is mean world syndrome. Basically, mean world syndrome is that we think that the world is horrible because of the media that we intake. So, for example, news tends to cover um, very vicious crimes and violent crimes first. Then it'll get into the other types of crimes or anything like that. So, that actually impacts us by understanding that, okay, maybe a lot of the crime that we is actually committed is violent crime, whereas it honestly isn't. So, again, media causes crime. Let's talk about this. I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking, what the heck is this, but just listen. Violent media is the cause of crime, so that's what it is that a lot of people claim. Alvaro Bandura actually created the Bobo Doll Experiment, where basically child and imitate behavior learned on television. So basically he had them watch a television show where there was some violent behavior and from there they would be given a bobo doll and see what it is that they would do. A lot of them turn around and took out violent reactions on this bobo doll. So um, factors that can intimidate one's encounter with the crime is also a very important thing. So the evidence however is inconsistent. Um, Maladaptive behavior is shown, and correlation versus causation is very unknown. So it could just be a correlation of, okay, violent media, they tend to do X, Y, and Z, and that's what causes them to have crime. Whereas some people believe, no, um, they see violent media and that causes crime. So the belief that persists is popular in political discourse and in popular discourse like popular media. So media influences our thinkings about crime. One other thing that it is that I want to talk about before we get into that is the NRA as a moral entrepreneur. I'll talk about a moral entrepreneur later, but the point is is that they claim that mass shootings are caused by violent media. So as a moral entrepreneur, they basically turn around and try to explain what the situation is that has to do with them, and others will try and relate back. And so they often try, the NRA with school shootings will often try to blame it on violent media. So media influences are thinking about crime. So the growth of media coverage since the 1960s has increased media consumption. Basically, violent crime media has gone up, just as regular media has also gone up. So what crime is featured in the media? Well, there's a saying that says, if it bleeds, it leads. Basically, packaging and selling of crime news stories is tabloid justice, and violent crimes featured more prominently and consistently. So this is for the media's self-interest and motive. So is it worthy of public consumption? They're always trying to get that. Tabloid justice slash employment and organizational needs. So let's talk about tabloid justice, which I just explained. It's the packaging and selling of crime news stories. It's by focusing on intention-grabbing stories. So media bandwagon effect is caused by the audience. Media is serving self-interest and determines what should or should not be covered. They focus on aspects that drive audience consumption 
assumption. Stories that present are always presented in a similar way. So again, they're trying to maintain audiences because those audiences are very important to allowing them to get that content out and to stay on top of the media world. So, violent, heinous, or strange cases tends to be the main cases that will make um, key events and the main page, the front page. So, these are always discussed in a routine manner. This was created by David Athead, and it's a problem frame. Um, it's the problem with the potential to affect people, and it's a simplistic solution to the problem. So, key ties are made to moral truths that a wide audience can relate to and considerate, and it allows people to relate to that. This can actually cause a discourse of fear, though, because many cases are relatable and can therefore increase fear in those individuals. So the problem frame allows for strange crimes to be explained in simplistic ways, and it tends to talk about individual explanations only rather than social factors, which as a sociologist isn't that great. And it's based on what is wanted to be seen, and solutions to crimes are given, so individual versus social factors. As I just said, they always focus on the individual factors rather than social factors. It doesn't really help as a sociologist because we don't see that happen. Policy implications are also enacted based on what it is that the audience wants to be seen as a solution. So, for example, a lot of these crimes tend to result in the people who are consuming the media to want to enforce, excuse me, harder, harder laws and strict on crime um, laws which basically is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be because it doesn't always go the way that it is that we want to. However, politicians will tend to always try to go and find that solution and make that their solution to support the mass media and the mass um, population. So media causes concern about crime. So crime rates versus fear about crime, not the same. So fear of crime does not relate directly to criminal rates at all. So diverging trends, they're completely different, but they do have demographic and situational factors. So situational factors and other factors contribute to your fear of crime. So Stanley Cohen is the original theorist about this. Moral panics are also a thing that happen, and it's basically just an overreaction to deviance or wrongdoing. It's an overreaction to what is actually happening in society, and it can be bust. It can still cause um, real concerns, but that concern is still an overreaction. It can be constructed by moral entrepreneurs, which we had talked about earlier, um, and it's basically just perceived threats to the moral order, and behaviors are constructed as a threat or crime. So, there are five stages of constructing a moral panic. Number one, threat is identified and defined. So it's getting more attention or it's new. Number two, it's depicted simplistically in a clear way and highlighting a scapegoat. Number three, portrayal of the symbol brings about public concern. So for example, there's one about nasty girls and different chastising them. And it basically just goes on about how girls are becoming really nasty and are doing horrible things 
and they're not fitting the proper social stereotype anymore. So that's the symbol that it is. So number four, response from authorities and policymakers. So let's talk about those nasty girls again. It got a lot of attention and a lot of public concern. So authorities had to respond and policies had to be put in place. Now, a lot of the times, especially with nasty girls, policies can't be put in place because they're not doing anything wrong necessarily. They're just not being the typical woman that men see as, as a woman. So sometimes it's difficult for policies to be put in place, but a crackdown on law is definitely something that happens. And number five, results in change to the community. So an amplification and deviance. So changes of expectations and ways that things operate. So the amplification of deviance is the problem does not become more prominent and they were paid because becomes more prominent because we pay less and pay more attention to it. So amplification of deviance, basically Schrodinger's cat, where once it is that we pay attention to it, it actually occurs in one way or the other. But if we're not paying attention to it, it simply ceases to exist, quote unquote. Media causes concern about crime. So media is more, has moral entrepreneurs. Now we talked about moral entrepreneurs a little earlier. Again, they spread their own views of criminal or deviant behavior and they make their moral codes the dominant moral codes. So for the NRA, again, they spread their views that mass shootings are caused by violent media. That is their views of defiant and criminal behavior. That is what they put out to the world. That makes their moral codes the dominant moral codes. That's what they are trying to do. So they are trying to encourage people to see it as, wow, shooting violence and gun violence is directly related to violent media. That is what they are trying to put out. So why should we care? Well, because of policy implications. So soft news versus hard news. Let's talk about that a little bit. So soft news is stories that shock, entertain, and have little to do with public affairs. So a lot of the stories that it is that we get tend to be soft news. It is just basics that we learn because somebody wants us to know about it, because it sells. Versus hard news are stories that are useful, educational, and informative. So anything that is actually protecting oneself or something like that, that's hard news. So, penal populism, or populist punitiveness, is the connection between media, public, and politics. Now, this is really important because this is how policy implications come to be. So, for media can be used to increase fear of crime. In turn, that sways the public to tough on crime measures and focus less on social factors of crime. So, therefore, media pushes the fear, the public is swayed to be tough on crime, and politics has to come in and enforce those tough on crime measures in order to stay in, po in power. Make sense? I hope it does. So, media influences perception of criminals. So, a lot of stereotypical manners are displayed, and it's kind of hard. So, BIPOC people are portrayed as criminal. Um, Coogan claimed uh, in his study that three to four times are, they are more likely to be white, black than white and portrayed as thugs or tough. Immigrants as terrorists, and then we get into female offenders. So they're doubly deviant. Double deviant, doubly deviant is criminal, but also violated with gender norms and code. So they not only violated 
the law, but they also violated their gendered code, which is a whole other thing. So they're also seen as predatory and promiscuous, racialized and marginalized women are even worse. Young people are victims of violent media and they are more like adults, more violent than before. Simplistically, explanations of criminal motives. It's very clear. Individual versus social. What words are used to describe these people? Um, what about their meanings of these words? So stereotypical social explanations are always given. So anti-immigrant cultural difference, critical, we need to be critical of what characteristics are included or excluded. What does it have to do with the case? And what words are used to describe the individual? What other context is given to the case? So media influences perception of victims. If it bleeds, it leads. We've talked about this, but it depends on who's bleeding. So Niels Christie actually in 1986 came up with the idea of the ideal victim. So, the ideal victim is a person or category of individuals who, when hit by a crime, most readily are given the complete and legitimate status of being a victim. So, ideal victim is connected to the media. Only the media can give the status of ideal victim. It is not the same as the victim that it is that is given to the police report. Ideal victim is purely a media-based media thing. So, there are... Five cate six categories, sorry, of being an ideal victim. Number one, you're weak. Number two, if you're carrying out a respectable project. Number three, when you are not to be blamed for your own victimization. Number four, victimized by a big bad offender. Number five, you are victimized by someone who is unknown to you. Number six, when you are powerful enough to make your case known and to portray yourself as a victim. Let's get a little more into some facts here. Indigenous female sexual assault victims have three times higher rates of being assaulted, and they are more likely to have serious physical injuries and other consequences. Yet, they're not seen as the ideal victim because um, people do not see them as carrying out a respectful project or anything like that. They just don't see the indigenous community as that, and that's based on prejudice. So, despite that, they are more likely to be have serious physical injuries and other consequences and are more likely to have higher rates of sexual assault, they are considered deserving and disposable outsiders. And this can impact the public's response to it. So a lot of the times they aren't given that ideal victim status. So we need to be critical of what cases make the news, how much attention they got, how those cases are framed, who is able to provide commentary, how the commentary can feed back into those frames, language, because it's never a neutral language, and the implications of colonial narratives privileged on some voices. So, media influences perceptions of responses. Whether a response is needed or not is completely different. What form of social control is needed? Well, if we look at it, there is a social versus an individual, a welfareist versus punitive. Punitive is 
perp approaches. Penal approaches. Whereas welfare states more social uh, social based approaches. For example, if an, an, a man is arrested for killing his wife, well, the individual punitive response is going to be, we're going to lock him up. Whereas the social welfare is going to look at it and say, well, why did he kill his wife? Was his wife abusing him? What was happening there? So there's different responses that can be needed. So the tough on crime are heinous crime. So really, that's divorced from reality and evidence. So for example, Holly Jones is officially registered as a sex offender. And yet before his trial, her trial, before the trial, there was no criminal history of sexual offending, ever. And oftentimes media is uncritical of the criminal justice system. So considering media sources, expert analysis are often state managers versus academics. So they tend not to actually use proper experts. So how does the media influence perceptions of responses? Perceptions of how the justice system works is the main effect. So there's something called the CSI effect. Now jurors have unrealistic expectations about the accuracy of forensics evidence and the investigation techniques. 40% of science, the science in the CSI shows that we watch does not exist. It's an unrealistic manner. But is there an effect? Well, there's definitely an effect perceived, but not by the jurors. The effect is actually perceived by the lawyers. So why does that make this matter? Well, it'll change how the lawyers go about trying to explain their case. For example, a lawyer will tend to more heavily base their case on CSI evidence and forensics rather than socially social factors because they see it as a more reliable um, evidence technique. So, CSI effect and policing criminal investigators, how does the media impact their job and how do they see themselves? So let's talk about the workload and let's talk about role strain. So for the workload, the CSI effect didn't really have much effect on policing because they saw it as their job to explain to people this effect and to have this effect happen. But sometimes it can be really bad where people come up to them and say, hey, you need to fingerprint all of this, even though it wasn't even in the room that we're investigating or anywhere near the house. We already know that it would probably have nothing to do with the case. You need to fingerprint it. So it can affect their workload. But for the most part, police see themselves as supposed to be explaining it to these people. So they don't see a role strain. So there's three ways that they can go about dealing with people who try to change this. They can play along and please them and say, yeah, yeah, I'll go about and I will fingerprint this broomstick, even though it's outside in the back and we know he came through the front door and left through the front door, whatever. There's the education path where they can go and say, okay, well, I get you on us to fingerprint this broomstick, but it has nothing to do with the case and we know that and we can explain to you why. Or Finally, the third option is the criminal investigators and policing can resort to authority status and just simply say, look, I know what I'm doing, leave me alone. So good news or bad news, there's always a limited impact on it. 
and there's a potential for public frustration, especially if resorting to authority status. So, finally, there's a broader influence on society, broader influence on perceptions of crimes, and there's critical approaches in the media. So, what messages are being conveyed, what is included, it's not excluded, excluded, media as a tool, knowledge versus informant, and influence on real responses. So the impact on how people actually respond to crime. Thank you so much to coming out to the Little Criminology Corner. I was so happy to have you. Please continue to learn and continue with your studies. I know you enjoy it and I know life's tough right now, but you really can get through this. I'm Quest. I've been your host today at the Little Criminology Corner. I really hope that you're able to follow us and come back to the Criminology Corner another day and see you around.